uh, we're not going to be used by God because we're such uh, wince or we don't have the brains or we don't have this or we don't have the other thing. And on this July 4, I was uh, trying to think of what should I uh, preach on. There's so many political issues. I love applying the scriptures to all areas of life. But the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized what we need is to offer up what we have, our nothingness to the Lord, and watch him uh, use us in his power. And there's a passage I want to look at. Uh, and we're returning, actually, to our evangelism series, Matthew chapter 10. And I figure the key to turning our nation back to God is really not capturing the White House or, you know, capturing the Supreme Court or anything else like that. It's repentance of the church, and it's a grassroots and evangelism going out. If, uh, if the grassroots are not captured, we're not going to capture our nation. So we're going to read Matthew 10, verses 5 through 14. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Amen. Father God, it is our desire to grow in our understanding and our love for your word, our obedience to your word. And I pray that across this world, wherever your word is being preached, that you would take it, quicken it to the hearts of your people, and that you would uh, bring about changes in your church far out of proportion to anything that even pastors could expect. We ask, O oh God, that you would bless this, your congregation, and bless our outreach as we're seeking to engage in evangelism in the communities roundabout. We love you, and we commit ourselves to you. We continue to worship as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in this uh, sermon series, we've been looking at uh, what the Bible says about evangelism by non-experts. And uh, we non-experts tend to be very intimidated, very nervous about this whole subject uh, of evangelism. You never know what people are going to say, what people are going to do to you as you share the gospel with them. I think sometimes our nervousness is a little bit misplaced. Uh, there was a pastor's wife who uh, told a story on her husband that her husband will probably never live down. He'll probably never live it down because uh, she sent the story in to our daily bread and everybody read about it. But uh, <laughs> apparently one night this uh, pastor, it was pretty late at night, he went, um, was going back home and there was a hitchhiker there. Rarely did he pick up hitchhikers, but he decided to pick this guy up. And as they're traveling along the road, He's getting more and more nervous about this guy and wondering, is this guy going to rob me? It's late at night. There aren't very many other cars around. 
And he was uh, getting more and more suspicious. So he felt his uh, suit jacket and his wallet was gone. And just on an impulse, he, he slammed on his brakes and he yelled at the guy, hand over the wallet and get out right now. And the terrified uh, hitchhiker handed over the wallet and left. But when the pastor got home, he realized he had left his wallet at home. <laughs> and he now had in his suit pocket the hitchhiker's wallet. Uh, talk about embarrassing. He had an address he could send the wallet back to. But here was a guy who was suspicious and nervous about what this other guy might do to him. And I, I think that's an analogy of the way we tend to be with unbelievers. We want to... Uh, you know, do something for Christ. We want to evangelize. We want to reach out. But we're always nervous, you know, about what they might say to us, what they might uh, do to us. And uh, this uh, chapter uh, is later on going to be pointing out that there is some basis for fear because uh, we're going to be seeing persecution that these people would face as they went out into the world. But there is an encouraging note in this passage that I want uh, you to be familiar with because uh, most of you are not going to be called to cross-cultural evangelism, but you're going to be called to something that is quite easy and is something that God uses uh, ordinarily. One of the most exciting things to me as a non-expert in evangelism is that historically God has chosen to win most people to Christ through non-experts. It's just an amazing thing. God has chosen to do it this way. Even though by far the majority, I was trying to look for the amount of money that's spent on mass crusades, and I couldn't find it, but by far the majority of money is spent on mass crusades. Down through history, only a tiny, tiny percentage of people have been won to Christ through mass crusades. And uh, there have been many studies that have shown this. For example, just in your mind... Try to come up with a figure of what you think might be the percentage of people uh, who have come to Christ. We're talking about first-generation Christians, okay? The, what's the percentage of people who have been won to Christ by some mass crusade or another, whether it's a Billy Graham crusade or, or some of these other uh, ma- mass crusaders? Try to come up with a, a figure in, in your mind. In the minds of most people, it's got to be pretty high. That's why we leave evangelism up to the experts. Because, you know, they're the ones <laughs> that have all the results, right? Well, actually, that's not true. That is absolutely not true. Every study that I have looked at that has uh, uh, maybe taken 10,000 believers of first-generation Christians and asked them, who was influential in leading you to Christ? Every study that is out there has said that less than half, uh, excuse me, less than 1% have been led to Christ through a mass crusade. One study said it was half of a percent that came through Christ. And that despite the fact that this is where most of the resources and most of the money has been thrown at evangelism uh, by churches. Uh, Here's um, a couple of other statistics. About 1% of first-generation Christians came to Christ through door-to-door evangelism. Well, 1% is nothing to scoff at, but uh, it's 1%. About 2% came to Christ through some other church program, 5% had the pastor lead them to Christ, but that statistic is somewhat skewed because uh, a a lot of times the pastor led someone to Christ after friends and relatives had already been working on him and brought that person to the pastor. Now get the statistic here. It's somewhere between 85% and 90% of all first-generation Christians 
said that they came through the influence of a close friend or a relative. Now you add to that the children of believers and you know you got something pretty significant going on here. And this is, we ought not to be surprised, you know, as Reformed believers, this is covenantalism. This is the way God has chosen to work. And in most countries uh, outside of America, the statistics are actually quite a bit higher. For example, in Erie and Jaya, where there have been huge people movements, uh, it's way over 98% of people who have come through the influence of friends or close relatives. Uh, uh, We've got to get out of our mind this individualistic uh, thinking that America has been so noted for. He prefers, God prefers, to use non-experts for reaching a world for Christ. Now, it's interesting that even these 12 who were sent out were not at first experts. Later on, they became experts in cross-cultural evangelism. They became missionaries, but they start off as disciples who make mistakes and blunders. In verse 2, uh, it lists, uh, starts listing the names of those apostles, but Matthew is very careful to point out they only become apostles later. Let me give you a statistic here. Matthew uses, it calls the apostles disciples 68 times in the Gospel of Matthew. He only calls them apostles once, and that's because they're going to later become apostles. In Acts, it's the exact opposite. of the time, they're called apostles. They're never called disciples. So what's going on there? What's going on is that the apostles have to start where every other Christian starts, as a disciple, learning the ropes, right? And they make mistakes. They stumble. They're going through life trying to figure things out. And so the kind of evangelism that they're engaging in here is the same kind of evangelism that the the 70 and the 120 and the 500 uh, engage in. Verse 5... Verse 5 says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them by saying, and here we're going to be looking at um, the, the way in which he's, first of all, introducing them to very easy way of evangelism, very easy way that anybody can be involved in. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's going to have them mix it up with people who are culturally and socially very similar to them. And the reason is that's where they're going to be the most effective. Now, later on, when they are thoroughly trained, these guys are going to be sent into cross-cultural missions, and even then, it's going to be extremely difficult. We saw that in the book of Acts. Uh, But um, initially, uh, he does not have them major in that. The second thing to notice as he gave them more than four spiritual laws to share. Uh, He says in verse 7, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for the Jewish mind, the kingdom of heaven, uh, they had been looking forward to it, but it was going to be a transformation of everything on earth. The kingdom of heaven was the reign of Messiah over politics, over economics, over business, over child-rearing, over every area of life. And so what he was giving to them was a holistic message. It wasn't just, you know, a tiny slice of life that they were talking about. Now, here's the point. When your Christianity impacts every area of life, those who are around you are going to begin to see that your Christianity is relevant. It's very practical. It's going to be another connecting point where they say, hey, what their kind of Christianity is about, it really does relate to what I'm thinking about, what I'm going through, the struggles that I am facing. It's a kingdom message. 
Third thing about the context <coughs> that's important is that God had already been preparing the unbelievers by bringing needs into their lives. God was at work to make it easy for these uh, disciples. Verse 8 uh, mentions sickness, incurable diseases, and the demonic. Uh, the, the raising of the dead there is not in the majority text or in the eclectic text. But um, he, he mentions three different things. Now, here, here's something to think about. Rarely is somebody going to say, no, I don't want you praying for my sick daughter, or no, I don't want you praying for me when I'm in the hospital or something like that. Most people who don't even believe in God say, well, sure, I guess it can't help. Nothing else seems to be working. Sure, go ahead and pray for me. And, and so this is a context in which God starts preparing people to be ready for you to influence in their lives. He'll bring a disease into their lives or a financial need or some other kind of a need, and you need to be thinking, how can I in some way relate and maybe minister to the needs that God's brought into my family and to my relatives, my business associates, and others like that? Fourth context that's worth looking at is that God gave these disciples power over Satan and disease. Verse 1 says, when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, if, if you're able to cast out a demon or you're able to uh, pray for someone and they're healed of their disease, people are going to sit up and take notice. Uh, this is one of the reasons why Paul said, I did not come to you in word only, but in word and in power. Word and in power. When people see the reality of God's power at work in your life, they're going to sit up and take notice. When they start seeing you having a rubber meets the road Christianity, you're involved in mercy ministries and things like that, they're going to sit up and they're going to take notice. And we could spend an entire sermon looking at these word and deed ministries, which uh, really are very effective in reaching out, but that's, we're not going to focus on the context. I just want to show you the context is especially attached to oikos or household ministry that we're going to be talking about. Five contexts for powerful uh, oikos evangelism. The last contextual thing that I want to mention before I get to the issue of households is that Christ wanted them to live a lifestyle where it would become very, very obvious they were living by faith and God was coming through for them. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now later on, he was going to ask them, hey, when I sent you out and you didn't have any of these things with you, did you ever lack anything? And they said, no, Lord, we didn't lack anything. And he said, okay, I'm not going to ordinarily have you do that, but he wanted them to have their faith elevated. But I think he also wanted some of these people to have a glimpse into the fact that when they lived by faith, God was coming through for them, not just on miracles. Yeah, they could do miracles, but God was real, real in their life with finances and food and, and the, the ordinary things that people have to, uh, have to face. And this is an ingredient that I think completely sets oikos evangelism from any other kind of evangelism. Dr. Thomas Wolfe said, it is here also that we catch an eye-burning hint of the key to oikos evangelism, life transformation, life transformation. Now, if you just go door to door, yeah, you can pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes. Uh, you know, you're only going to have a few minutes with them. 
you can't pull the wool over the eyes of those who know you, those who are in your oikos. And so if that those people see that you've got a real, genuine Christianity, God's at work in your life, it's going to impact them. They're going to see that there is a difference. So th- these are one of the things you could be praying about. Lord, make the reality of these five things more and more genuine in my life. But let's get to the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, and that is helping people reach out to their spheres of influence. Now, these disciples were going to be at a tremendous disadvantage when they walk into a new town. They don't know anybody. But the first family that they win to Christ is not going to be at the same disadvantage because he's going to have a whole web of relationships uh, in that town. And so we're going to see there is a place for cold turkey, what I call kamikaze evangelism. And, uh, you know, Ray Comfort, he loves doing that kind of evangelism. There's a place for that. Uh, Because that's where you find, you know, some of these contacts that otherwise you wouldn't find. But then it's interesting that Jesus tells them, I don't want you to continue going door to door. And I don't want you to continue engaging in open air campaigning. I want you to stay in that first household that you lead to Christ. And I want you to begin preparing them for the work of the ministry. Okay, that's basically what the thesis of this sermon is all about. He's not emphasizing all of the other. He is emphasizing household evangelism, the impact that each one of us can have on our sphere of influence. Take a look at verse 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. That's an interesting concept. Uh, what, What God is saying there is there are some people who simply are not worth the time or the effort of trying to evangelize them. That may seem like a kind of rough thing to say about people, but all it's doing is it's being realistic. It's saying no one person has the, the sufficient energy to, to evangelize everybody, so there's got to be a weeding out process. Who are the ones, Lord, you want me to be focusing upon? <coughs> and, um, and who are the ones that you have already prepared for the gospel? God does not want us wasting our time and our energy and our resources trying to give the gospel to people who are utterly uninterested in the gospel, trying to shove the gospel down people's throats. Now, Ray Comfort will point out you shouldn't assume a person is, is um, you know, hardened to the gospel if you've not been powerfully presenting God's law in their lives. It's the law that shows whether they're prepared or not. God takes that law and he brings conviction Uh, But um, uh, there has to be a weeding out process because we cannot possibly evangelize everybody. How do we go about looking for the people who are especially open to the gospel? We're talking not here about oikos. We're talking here about the kamikaze, okay? You know, you can't be doing kamikaze all the time. Uh, Who are the people that we should try to focus on? Well, first of all, they spent some time in cold turkey evangelism, street evangelism, open-air campaigning. Very appropriate to do some of that. Secondly, their mercy ministries would put them into touch with people uh, who maybe God has already prepared. So there might be one person you've healed, and they're still not interested in the gospel. But over there is a woman that was healed, and God has opened her heart, just like Lydia's heart, to listen and pay attention to the things that you are saying. And so God could use the, the acts of kindness, the mercy ministries, and just looking, how do these people respond? You're going to immediately be able to tell, here's a person I really need to spend a lot more time on because it seems as if God is working in their heart. Thirdly, there may have been word of mouth that, um, 
began to spread and people began coming and, and wanting to talk to these apostles. Now, those are three samples that you can, I think, get by implication from the passage, but we've got boatloads of opportunities for inquiry. We've got radio, we've got all kinds of advertising uh, uh, methods that are, that, are, that are possible. Ray Comfort loves using surveys. Uh, surveys is one way of seeing if people have interest and very quickly going through uh, a number of people. But uh, there, there does need to be some weeding out process to determine who is worthy of a further expenditure of time, resources, and energy. Now let's move on to point three. When you compare verses 11 through 14 with Mark 6:10 and Luke 10, verse 7, uh, we find that Jesus wanted them, once a person has come to faith, to leverage that family and leverage their influence in that city for all that they were worth. Now let me back up a little bit. Let me define what household or oikos means because I think there's a lot of confusion in America on that. Let me start by giving three definitions from uh, various books. Dr. Thomas Wolfe said, an oikos, that's the word that's translated household, the oikos was the fundamental and natural unit of society and consisted of one's sphere of influence, his family, friends, and associates. That's assuming, of course, that the business was a family business, but uh, uh, master plan. The master's plan for making disciples defines it this way. The word oikos is the Greek word for household. In the Greco-Roman culture, oikos described not only the immediate family in the house, but included servants, servants' families, friends, and even business associates. Uh, Ralph Neighbors defines it this way. An oikos was one's sphere of influence, his or her social system composed of those related to each other through common kinship ties, tasks, and territories. And so this is why when, when God tells Cornelius, go and call your household together and invite Peter to your household, oikos, uh, immediately in obedience it says he called together his relatives and close friends. That's Acts 10 verse 24. That was his oikos, his relatives and his close friends. Uh, let's use uh, Abraham as a definition of oikos. Uh, you might think before Ishmael was born that Abraham's household was composed of Sarah and himself. But in, in Genesis chapter 14, it says that there were 318 men, fighting men, who were born into his household. Okay, that text very clear. 318 men born in his household. And the Septuagint is oikos, and the Old Testament Hebrew was was household. What's going on there? Well, these were likely servants and slaves that were a part of his family business. If you want a picture of this, just think of the Old South and the big plantations that were there. The servants, some of them were free men, some of them were slaves. All of these people were actually by them considered to be their household. And the Presbyterians would baptize them all, okay? They were under their authority. They were under their roof. And it's an exact parallel to the way the oikos principle was used in the Old Testament. So that's enough by way of definition. What I want you to see here is how the oikos was the most important aspect of their outreach. Because if you can grasp this point, it's just going to be tremendously liberating in terms of your, your thinking, how do I evangelize? Be very liberating. Now let me read uh, verses 11 through 14, and then I'll, I'll read for you some parallel accounts. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, 
and stay there till you go out. So you stay with that person. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Here's how Mark 6.10 words it. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. So they were supposed to strengthen that household during that whole stay. Luke 10, verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. I want you to notice that last phrase. Do not go from house to house. Statistically, it's, it's probably second to worst form of evangelism. <laughs> do not go from house to house. Now, you can do that. You can do some of the house to house, but as soon as you find a convert, stay there. Why? Because this is where the focus of evangelism is going to take place. It's through that family's fear of influence. <clears throat> Many have had the misconception that God richly blesses mass crusades and door-to-door evangelism and other means. And I'm not saying people should not do that. I'm just not, I'm saying that should not be their emphasis because Oikos evangelism has down through the centuries far outstripped mass crusades, door-to-door evangelism, Sunday school, anything else uh, that is out there. And if you want a book that describes this covenantal approach to evangelism, it's The Master's Plan for Making Disciples by Wynne Arne and Charles Arne, their two brothers, published by Church Growth Press in Pasadena. Now, what they do is they say, okay, America is quite an individualistic country, but they say it's fascinating in terms of statistics to show this principle still works even in America. He says 90% of those who come to Christ come through the oikos. Now, he mentions in other countries it's even higher, but even here in individualistic America, he says this is simply the way that God works. So what we need to begin thinking is the impact of a Noah. Abraham, Phineas, a Joshua, a Zacchaeus, a Justice, a Crispus, a Philippian jailer. You know, how did the church in Philippi start? Through two, two families, the Philippian jailer and Lydia. Now, Lydia's oikos included probably her business, and it probably included that group of prayer meeting women. And each of the women in that prayer meeting had their own oikos, so there's an overlap, but there is this continuing to grow influence. The Philippian jailer uh, was the same way. Uh, each person in the Philippian jailer's oikos uh, had a growing web of relationships. And this is what made for the phenomenal spread of the faith in the first few centuries. The famous historian Kenneth Scott Lauterette said this in, uh, let's see, it's volume one of the history of the expansion of Christianity. He said, this is the first five centuries, the, the primary change agents in the spread of the faith were the men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in this natural fashion. So Christ knew if these disciples could win one family in each town, that family had the potential of reaching the entire, entire town uh, for Christ. And so the oikos is absolutely central. Reason? It's sheep. That reproduce sheep, not shepherds. 
If God wanted evangelists or if he wanted uh, 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 shepherds to do all the work of the evangelism, well, he'd have to have them going door to door. He'd have to have them constantly doing mass crusades, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He has them equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, that's what they were doing in these households. They were equipping the saints in that household for the work of the ministry of spreading out. Were there mass crusades in the book of Acts? Absolutely, yes, there were. But as soon as people were one to Christ in the mass crusade, what do they do? They focus on the households. They have immediately worship services. Now, they met in the temple and from house to house. So they have the big corporate groups, but then they also met in worship, like in Acts 20, verse 7. And in Bible studies, Acts 5, verse 42, Christian fellowship, Acts 2, 46, evangelism, Acts 17, 5, Acts 16, 32, follow-up, all kinds of different activities. It's like the whole church revolved around households. Everything revolved around households. Uh, why don't you turn with me to Acts 18. We'll just look at one example. Acts 18 and uh, verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now here was uh, you know, a prime target for a Matthew 10 evangelism. And uh, here is the first family that comes to Christ. But in the next verse, you're going to notice this family is related to another household, who in turn is related to another household. And uh, look at where the focus turns. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Okay, so that's, that's the context. Now, I've just got a short little bit left in this sermon, but this is the most exciting part of it all to me. And this is the phenomenal power and potential that you have in your households for reaching others uh, for Christ. Wherever the disciples went there was a peace of God that went into that household or sometimes returned uh, back to them. It was a supernatural presence that accompanied them. Verse 13, If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So there's peace traveling to the house. Sometimes the peace comes back to them. And some people say, oh yeah, okay. You pronounce shalom to that house. And then those people say, yeah, shalom to you too. That's not what he's saying here because commentators point out when it's returning to you is when the people don't say shalom. They don't, they're your enemies. They don't want you around here. And so the peace comes back. So there is something supernatural that's actually going when you say peace to this house and there is a son of peace there. It says God's peace will stay in that household. So it's something supernatural that is going on uh, in that household. And Luke makes this crystal clear. Luke 10, in verses 5 through 7, he tells the 70 when they went out, but at whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, etc. So there were a lot more houses that had peace pronounced upon them than actually had peace invading them. What's going on here, a simple explanation, is that God's shalom, His welfare, was actually invading that household and setting it aside, protecting it from judgment. When there was no son of peace there, the peace returned. God would not bless that household. Why? Because 
They were rejecting the gospel. They were rejecting God's messenger of the gospel, and so God's judgment uh, is spoken about after that. It temporarily sets aside a household for reconciliation. So every one of you men, when you go into a business and you're working there, God's peace has invaded that workplace and it's going to be making a difference. Just think of yourself like Joseph. Joseph was taken into Potiphar's house. What happens as soon as he's in Potiphar's house? God starts blessing all of Potiphar's house, right? It's God's peace invading Potiphar's house. Then when he gets into the jail, what happens there? Well, it's no longer any son of peace in Potiphar's house, so where does the blessing go? It goes to the jail. When he goes to the um, <clears throat> president, whatever his name, Pharaoh, <laughs> into Pharaoh's house, God's house, I mean, Pharaoh's household is invaded by God's peace. You need to be thinking of yourselves as truly ambassadors of peace and taking advantage of that. Too many times we're passive. We're not taking advantage and leveraging the peace that God's already brought uh, into those households. Now, Luke indicates that the only households that were set aside in that way were households that had at least one believer. Had to be at least one believer. He says, if a son, this is a singular, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. Now, read 1 Corinthians 7, 14 in that light, and it takes on whole new meaning. He tells, you, he tells you know, a person who's become a believer and their spouse is not a believer not to leave that family. He said as soon as there's one believer in that family, the whole oikos is set aside for the spirits working. And he said that the husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. Same word. They're, they're sanctified as well. So he says, don't leave that household. You've got the kingdom of God that's invaded there already. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So by your godly presence, you have sanctified the household. Well, here's where it gets really exciting. This means every one of you have already had God's supernatural peace invading your sphere of influence. It's invaded your business. It's invaded your, your, your family, your relatives, your neighborhood. God's supernatural peace has already invaded there. Daniel adds a comment. He says that uh, angels, because every one of us has guardian angels, right? God's angels invade every place where a son of peace is as well. So there's automatically spiritual warfare that's going on. Uh, and uh, this is true even on a, a national level. When, when there's a people like Daniel in the government, automatically there's a crowd of angels that have invaded that space. The kingdom of God has invaded that area. The Holy Spirit has invaded uh, with His peace as well. And so this gives you a tremendous advantage in evangelism that no expert who's going out there cold turkey has. You've got tremendous advantages. It ought to give you optimism and joy and, and faith in what God uh, can do through you. Now, I know Ray Comfort, he kind of uh, makes fun of friendship evangelism sometimes. And the kind of a friendship evangelism he's talking about is worthy of making fun of because it takes them 10 years before they become friends and feel like now we can talk about the gospel. No, right off the bat, you're talking about God's peace. You're pronouncing the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon these people. You're talking about the kingdom. So there is a friendship evangelism, but 
you know, don't be set aside by what Ray Crumford is criticizing. He's not criticizing people who take advantage of these principles right here. <clears throat> so if you've been discouraged about the state of affairs in America, here's where we tie it in with July 4. <laughs> the key, really, is not taking over the White House, taking over, you know, the Supreme Court or anything else like that. The key is to be faithful where God has placed you. If He happens to place you in the White House, God's angels are going to be invading the White House. And uh, His peace is going to be invading the White House. At least if you're faithful and you're willing to speak about the kingdom in the White House, right? And not be quiet about it. Uh, but you need to be faithful where God has placed you. And there could be a grassroots movement if we would be willing to do this. Speaking God's Word and, and, and influence into every sphere <coughs> of our oikos. Now let me end by giving you nine good reasons for why this oikos evangelism really ought to be exciting to you. And if you're trying to figure out the, the uh, little clues at the bottom of the page, you know, that are scrambled, you'll hear the clues in each of these statements. First, it's biblical. So it makes sense that it's going to be blessed by God, right? Uh, just get American individualism out of your head. Begin to think covenantally and realize oikos evangelism is, is biblical. Second, it's a natural network of relationships for sharing the love of Christ. It's probably the most natural way of reaching out. Third, oikos members are going to be much more receptive to one another than they will be to a stranger. Plus, they're much more likely to see the whole kingdom being worked out in your life. Fourth, it allows for unhurried, natural sharing of God's love. People are going to see the whole covenant context of the gospel in your lives. They can't get rid of you. You're part of their oikos, right? They can't, well, they could kick you out of the family, I guess. Sometimes that does happen. But you can just, in an unhurried way, over weeks, over months, over years, be giving drip advertising, you know, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're speaking God's peace into their lives. Whereas door-to-door evangelism, what happens? You know, you maybe get two or three sentences out of your mouth and they slam the door in your face. It's very hurried. You've got to hurry trying to get, you know, the, your, door, your foot into the door. This is so natural, so unhurried. Fifth, it more naturally fits in with the affirming character of hospitality than it would with total strangers. There's something very affirming about this, this, this method. Sixth, once a person comes to Christ, this provides a more natural support and nurturing relationship. What happens in churches with traditional evangelism is people seem to go out the back door almost as fast as they come in the front door. And, and they say it's because they're not making friendships. They're not, they're not being nurtured and, and, and supported. Well, if it's friends and family who are leading them to Christ, they've already got a nurturing relationship and a friendly relationship, right? And so it's a perfect way of keeping people there. Uh, seventh, it tends to win entire families. And this is especially true if it's the man who was the first one led to Christ. Just like over 90% of the uh, time, the whole family is won to Christ. Not just in nuclear families. This is true of entire tribes. Back in the 1800s, missionaries were absolutely flabbergasted that entire tribes in a matter of weeks would come to Christ. They had been working for years with no converts, and suddenly... 
One person comes to Christ, and in a matter of weeks, oh, everybody else comes to Christ. And some of these people said, oh, yeah, right, that's not a real conversion. It's because the chief came to Christ or because some other influential people uh, came to Christ that they became Christians. But over time, as they're examining these people, they realize, wow, this is a genuine work of God's Spirit. Dispensationalists, they were especially skeptical. But over time, you know, it's happened so many times since the 1800s to the present, people say, no, this is just the way God works. We don't know why, but it's the way God works. Eighth, it tends to assimilate converts into the church more fully. And again, because friends and relatives bring them in. Ninth, it's a constantly enlarging source of new converts. So each member of one oikos is always going to have some relationship with another oikos. So your web of relationships are not going to include everybody that your brother-in-law's oikos is going to include. There's going to be a big overlap. And then he's going to have some people in his that are going to have, um, you know, other oikoses, other people that aren't in his oikos. In other words, there's a constantly spreading, increased web of relationships that are there. And so to repeat those nine words, it's biblical, natural, receptive, unhurried, affirming, supportive, inclusive, assimilates, and it's constantly enlarging. Great reasons, great reasons to be engaged in household evangelism. Now, some of you are new to, fairly new to Omaha, and you think, what do I do? Because my oikos is off in Florida, you know, and I don't get together with them very often. You can still have an influence there, but sometimes you have to develop a new web of relationships that's very close with your neighbors. You could have block parties, or you could invite your business associates over for dinner, or there's various ways that you can reach out. Or, you know, if you're bold, you could join with the church in some of our kamikaze evangelism, you know, and go out there and find some new households that they themselves, you can help them uh, to to get out, the Ray Comfort uh, evangelism. Or you could involve yourself in deeds of mercy, Surveys, starting neighborhood watch programs, community services. There's various ways that you can do it, and various types of evangelism all feed off of each other. But for this morning, I just have one challenge for you. Just one challenge. Realizing the power of God's peace that has already invaded your neighborhood, your business, associates, your friends, and your relatives, I want you to start writing down the names of all of your web of close relationships, praying for them regularly, and then starting to strategize, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to reach out to those people? I think if you could do that, uh, you're well on your way to beginning to have the impact upon towns that uh, we see in the Gospels and later in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have of putting it into, uh, into effect. We know that in ourselves we are nothing, but you've already prepared the way. You are the Alpha and the Omega of evangelism, the beginning and the end. We can just relax in the fact that it's not up to us to change hearts. It's not up to us to prepare the field. And Father, you are the one who does all these things. We simply have the privilege of uh, attaching our hand to your hand as we scatter the seed into the lives of our webs of, uh, of influence and spheres of influence. I pray, Father, that you would bless each one of us uh, with the privilege of leading at least one person to a saving knowledge of you. And may you receive all of the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.